We remain in Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 13 through 26. Galatians 5, verses 13 through 26. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Matthew. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you so much for your word and for its ongoing power and relevance for our lives. And we ask that by your Spirit that you would speak to us. Please help me as I preach and help all of us to benefit what you would say to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So out of interest, how many people here um, own a pet? So like a dog, a cat, a rabbit? Raise your hand. Okay, interesting. And how many people here would say that your pet is very well behaved? Okay. Um, Okay. Nikki and I um, have, some of you have met our cat Nala already, we have a a really slightly crazy fluff ball. Um, uh, You can see it in this photo. Um, This photo was actually taken, uh, always makes me happy to see it, just um, after Rupert had phoned us to tell us we were coming to St. Michael's, and this was us uh, sort of celebrating. Um, But what you might not know um, is that before we got... Uh, Nala, my family used to have a delinquent dog uh, called Delium, not unlike this one. Uh, Now, Delia uh, was the most chaotic and stubborn dog you could ever imagine. If you've ever seen the film uh, Marley and Me, then you get the idea. Um, If there was a freshly roasted Christmas turkey on the side, she would be the one to jump up and eat it. If there was a disgusting, rotting animal carcass somewhere, she would find it and bring it home. 
Um, she would eat horse manure. I didn't even know dogs did that before I got her. She would eat horse manure and then stink out the house um, with her breath. And I could still just remember trying to walk her down the pavement and with Delia on the lead and just her pulling and tugging and the pressure um, as she pulled on the lead and as I tried um, in vain to keep her to heal. And it felt like I was in um, a losing battle uh, with this force of nature, with this wild and out of control animal. Well, in our reading this morning, it speaks of um, a fierce battle with something far more unruly and menacing than a delinquent dog called Delia. It speaks of a battle with something that Paul calls the flesh. Uh, So in verse 17, he says, the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They, They are in conflict with each other. Now, that phrase, the flesh, um, it refers to human nature as it stands in in sort of sinful rebellion against God. And in a way, it's teaching that there is this kind of mortal enemy of our souls, and it isn't an enemy uh, that's out there in other people. Uh, It isn't our political enemies. It isn't in those who have different values to us. Um, No, our greatest enemy alongside the devil himself is this beast that resides within us, the flesh. And uh, the Apostle Peter describes the flesh like this. He says, Dear friends, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which, and here it is, wage war against your soul. Why am I telling you all of this? Because we're in a preaching series looking at the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And today I'm going to be speaking with you about uh, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. And our passage this morning is going to teach us that if we want to see more of these traits in our lives, if we want to see more of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that fruit always follows the fight. Fruit always follows the fight. It's as the Holy Spirit enables us to fight and to crucify and put to death the flesh that fruit follows. But there's no escaping the fight if we want to see the fruit. This is so important. How many people here uh, would say that you experience temptation? And what is the number one lie when you are experiencing temptation? I think the number one lie when you experience temptation is this. We think, I am experiencing temptation, and therefore I may as well Uh, go ahead and do it anyway. I'm as good as guilty. For example, um, your spouse uh, says something that presses your buttons and you feel yourself getting worked up and you think, well, I'm worked up already, so I may as well tell them what I really think. And before you know it, you're in an argument and you've hurt their feelings. Or you're surfing the internet and something inappropriate pops up. And before you know it, you're in trouble. Or you're at work and everyone else is being dishonest and you think, well, I don't want to get left behind, so I may as well join in. Why do we do this? We do this, I think, partly at least because we think, I'm experiencing temptation, therefore I am as good as guilty, therefore I may as well just do it. 
And friends, I do want to say that I think this is a lie from the pit of hell. As Christians, those indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, not only is temptation not the same as giving in to sin, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we fight, God can grow fruit in our lives. When you go to the gym, where does the strength come from? The strength comes on the resistance, doesn't it? At least that's what I'm told. You can probably tell I don't do much weightlifting, but I'm told strength comes, right, on the resistance. Now listen to this from the book of Hebrews chapter 4. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been, what? Who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Experiencing temptation is not the same as giving in to sin. Even Jesus, who was totally sinless and did not experience a single sinful thought, experienced temptation. And so the next time the devil, you know, sort of begins to whisper that lie, you're experiencing temptation, therefore you are worthless, you are disgusting, so you may as well go ahead and do it. You can reject that decisively and say, actually, no, the fact that I experience conflict with the flesh is actually proof that the Holy Spirit is in my life. If the Holy Spirit wasn't in my life, I wouldn't experience the conflict. And as I follow his leading and lean on him, I know that he will give me everything I need to fight the flesh. Because the fruit always follows the fight. Now, in the Galatian church, there were false teachers who've come into the church, and they are teaching that you're not saved by trusting Jesus alone. You also need to be circumcised, and you also need to try and try really hard to keep and, and to obey the law of God. Then God might accept you. And so if we were to interview these false teachers and to ask them, you know, how do you think we need to deal with this beast, this flesh that resides within us. They would probably agree at that point with Paul's diagnosis of the flesh. And we were to ask them, you know, how do you think we should deal with it? How can we have more kindness, goodness, faithfulness in our lives? Uh, they would probably respond, well, that's easy. You need to obey the law. You need to pull up your bootstraps and keep up your moral and religious performance. And Paul comes right against these false teachers and says, not only is the law incapable of justifying us before God, of making us right with him, uh, the law is also completely incapable of dealing with the flesh. The law has no power over the flesh. Kindness, goodness, and faithfulness cannot be produced by willpower um, or trying harder or by increasingly intense religious activity. It's just not how it works. There is only one thing, or perhaps more accurately, one person who can energize a life that is pleasing to God, and he is called the Holy Spirit. Now, it's easy when you look at the fruit of the Spirit to slip into a kind of moralism to say, well, if you want more of the Holy Spirit in your life, then you need to try your very hardest to be kind, to be good, to be faithful, and then you might make the cut, and you might get this ethereal thing called the fruit of the Spirit. But that is not what Paul is saying. He's saying, when the Holy Spirit is in your life and in a church community, 
He's saying the Spirit will inevitably and gradually produce this fruit of kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. As he puts it elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, he says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but only God has been making things grow. And when we're clear in our minds that only God can grow the fruit of the Spirit, that nothing good can come from our flesh, it's actually incredibly clarifying and helps us in the fight with the, to use the weapons that God gives us in the gospel. So what does it look like for us to grow in kindness, goodness, and faithfulness? I think it's all there, the essence of it in verse 24, where he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have, um, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It starts with remembering that we belong to Christ. It starts with remembering that our acceptance and our approval with God rests not on us and our performance, but on him and what he has done. And uh, this grows kindness within us because it tells us that God has been wildly and unimaginably kind to us in taking us while we were still his enemies, while we were still in the flesh, utterly hostile to the things of God by nature, and that he died it for our sin in our place, so that now we belong to him. Now, the Greek word that Paul uses um, for kindness is Christotes. Now, one commentator explains Christotes like this. It says, the goodness of God is not a moral holiness from which a person might shrink in fear. It is a kindness which draws people to him with cords of love. Kindness which draws people to him with words, with cords of love. I love that. In other words, when God is described in the Bible as Christotes, as kind, it refers to God's kind of stunning gracious activity towards us in Christ. And when we are the recipients of that kind of kindness, we're set free to be radically kind to those around us. Because here's the thing, I think if I'm honest with myself, if we are honest with ourselves, so much of what passes off today in the modern world as kindness is just selfishness in disguise. So we might be kind to people most of the time because of the benefit uh, we draw from those relationships. Uh, so we might be kind to our boss because they pay us. Uh, we might be kind to our friends because they give us a sense of belonging. We might be kind uh, to our in-laws because we have to. But most <laughs> of the relationships are tinged. I'm glad Nikki's not here. I'd get into trouble. Um, most of our relationships are tinged by this selfish element, aren't they, if we're honest? However, when uh, this kindness, this Christotes of God takes root in our heart, it sets us free from transactional kindness. It sets us free from using other people and enables us to be counterculturally kind, to be profligately kind, kind to people who just don't deserve it, kind to those who have hurt us kind to those who can't give us anything back whatsoever. 
And gosh, I mean, it seems to me that we just live in a world where kindness just seems to be on a downward spiral. If you look at the way uh, people speak to each other online and the hatred uh, there, it is absolutely shocking, isn't it? The rise of the sort of, you know, shame and blame cancel culture is another expression of it. But the world desperately needs Christians who are infused with the very kindness of Jesus And when we see his kindness, when we see that we belong to him, it sets us free to deeply and genuinely love people. It also sets us free to grow in that second trait of the Spirit's fruit, goodness. Now, goodness is a slightly more difficult word to define. Scholars don't really, aren't 100% sure what it means, but I think it's fairly safe to say that that word for goodness included in its meaning is moral integrity, Goodness is about doing the right thing, even when it's unpopular or costly to do so. Uh, In that sense, goodness has a more kind of resolute feel to it than kindness. It's a less cuddly word than crestotes, the kindness we were looking at before. Now, again, when I look within myself, I think I need more of this in my life because being a Christian today can be incredibly hard and lonely. And to be a Christian takes real courage and and guts. Courage to do what is right is the essence of goodness. And when we belong to Christ, when we belong to one who was so filled with goodness himself, so resolutely committed to the good, to God's will, that it says, you know, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus set his face to go and die for our sake and for our salvation. And as Jesus contemplated the mess that humanity was in and the cross on which he was called to die, such was his goodness, his focus, that he went to it gladly and deliberately and unwaveringly. And knowing that can powerfully help us to bear the smaller sacrifices that we make in order to do what is right. It can help us to bear the loneliness that can come from living out the fruit of the Spirit in your workplace, in your families, with your friends, especially when you are the only Christian. And finally, knowing we belong to Christ can help us to grow in faithfulness. So the Greek word there is pistis, and it's where our word for faith comes from. And really, it means kind of a rock-solid reliability, absolute trustworthiness, someone who does what they say. It's, it's the first person you would phone if everything went wrong in your life. That's faithfulness. And the opposite of faithfulness, therefore, would probably be flakiness, lack of commitment, not following through on what you say you're going to do. And you can see kind of this faithfulness again throughout Jesus' ministry, but there's a particularly powerful moment Um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the disciples have fallen asleep, Jesus is alone, and he falls to the ground, and he begins to sweat drops of blood. That was a sign of psychological distress. And he begins to pray, and he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. Yet not what you will, yet not what I will, but what you will be done. Jesus was faithfulness, 
personified, faithfulness to God and faithfulness to us, even when he was in the utter agony of crucifixion, even as people mocked and said, he saved others, he can't save himself. His faithfulness could not be defeated. And with that kind of faithfulness, I hope you can see how improper it is for us when we are flaky and unreliable in our relationships. However, when we know uh, that we belong to Christ at the deepest possible level, that he was faithful to us even to death, knowing that has so much power to increase our bandwidth for other people and to fill our relationships with faithfulness. Faithfulness is the bedrock of all godly marriage. Faithfulness is the basis of all true and lasting friendship. Faithfulness enriches the church. And it's one of the most wonderful aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. So we remember that we belong to Christ, but we also remember that we have, verse 24, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's almost like Paul says, when we give in to temptation, it's like revisiting the site of our execution It's like we're trying to take our sin down from the cross and to sort of carry it around with us all over again. But Paul says, for those who love and know Christ, that's crazy, isn't it? Uh, When we came to believe in Christ, we crucified our flesh once and for all. We crucified our flesh and we are dead to it and it is dead to us. And so it's as though Paul says to us, don't go back and try to take your flesh down from the cross. Resolve to keep the flesh on the cross where you left it when you first put your trust in Jesus. And as you do that, the fruit will always follow the fight. Nikki and I really enjoy watching a new show on on the BBC. Maybe you've seen it. It's called Sort Your Life Out. Now, it's basically about a team of kind of tidying and minimalist experts who come into a home, a family home, where there's loads of uh, like clutter, loads of mess. And to help the family get rid of all the clutter, they get a removal van and they take all of their belongings, everything out of the house, and they lay it out on the floor in this massive warehouse. And uh, then the family have to sort of walk among their belongings and decide what they're going to get rid of and what they're going to keep. And there's always quite a moving moment where someone in the family will turn and say to the presenter, you know, we've tried to tidy the house before, but we realized we were just moving the mess from one place to another. We realized that trying to tidy up the house before it's been emptied and before the junk has been thrown away is impossible. And in a way, that's kind of what Paul is saying in this reading here. If you're here and you're exploring Christianity, Paul is saying trying to clean up your act without coming to the cross of Jesus is impossible. It's just moving your mess from one room to another. It's also what distinguishes Christianity from other religions. And for all of us, coming to Jesus means that we've crucified the flesh dealing with the mess at its, very, um, at its very source. Because the cross is the basis for all change that matters in the sight of God. 
And the Holy Spirit only comes to us in and through the cross. We stand justified and forgiven at the cross, and we only grow in the Christian life through the cross. And that's God's call on each and every one of us as we ask God to grow the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. That we might say with all of our hearts what he goes on to say in chapter 6, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the cross of Jesus, that we stand forgiven at the cross. We thank you that for the Holy Spirit that comes to us through the cross and empowers us and helps us to say no to the flesh. Help us to keep the flesh on the cross where it belongs. Thank you that we have everything we need to live the way that you call us to. And we ask that you would be pleased to grow the fruit of the Spirit among us in our lives and in St. Michael's. And in particular, Lord, that we would see kindness, goodness and faithfulness increasingly breaking out in our relationships. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.